Hello, uh, hi everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Um, my name is Andrew Fuller. Welcome to the I Am IMA podcast, uh, a podcast from Newcastle University's Innovation Methodology and Application Theme. Um, I'm joined today uh, really kindly by Lulu Lulu Svetkovic. Um, thanks very much for for joining me, Lulu. Um, obviously, we're we're doing this remotely, um, just so people who are listening know. Uh, we're currently looking at a very very snowy February morning in 2021. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot of snow here at the seaside, there's a lot of snow inland as well. Um, but yeah, Lulu's joining me, she's a quality assurance manager uh, who works at Newcastle University, uh, has done for a little while. Um, hi, how are you Lulu, how are you doing? Good morning, um, I'm really good this morning, so thanks very much indeed for uh, inviting me to join you. Um, oh, it's my, really it's my pleasure, thanks very much for, for, for agreeing to it, for, for signing up for it. Um, I guess we, we, we've never actually met in person, but um, we know kind of similar people. We work in, in similar fields. I know your name's come up uh, across across my emails in the past, uh, talking about QA, quality assurance. Um, but you work, so you, how long have you been working at Newcastle? What you're doing, what you're doing? I noticed you, you used to work for the NICR, um, and then do that no longer exists now, technically speaking, I guess. So so could you like, what is it roughly, just in like a, a couple of sentences, What what is it, how long have you been working at Newcastle? What is it that you're... Uh, your job title involves I guess. So this year it'll be 10 years since I joined Newcastle University Um, so like you said originally when I joined it was NICR as people probably still know it Northern Institute for Cancer Research yeah and following a major restructuring in November 2019 um, we're now the Newcastle University Centre for Cancer so we've changed from NICR to NUCC. Okay Uh, so Um, you're still tied with the NUCC Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. So physically, I sit in the Paul O'Gorman building, and my remit is the Paul O'Gorman building, and also the, the Herschel building, floors five and six, um, where we also have um, researchers that work on childhood cancers. Um, so, like you said, Andrew, my role is quality assurance manager. Um, so primarily, I'm I'm funded by ECMC, Experimental Cancer um, Medicines Centre. Um, so they fund me to work on clinical trial studies, which are run by Professor Gareth Veal. So I don't know whether you know Gareth. Only by name, I've, I've never met him, I don't think. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so Gareth runs a number of adult and paediatric clinical trial studies. And a really important component of that is the quality assurance, which is my role comes in. So I'm kind of responsible for making sure that we've got all those processes in place um, to make sure that we comply with all the applicable regulations. So in the case of clinical trials, it's GCP, which you may have heard of, good clinical practice. Yeah. So that applies to um, medical devices and um, CTIMPs, so it's medicines that are being tested as well. Um, and obviously for us, like I say, we're testing them on paediatric patients as well as adult patients as well. So it's really important, for example, when we send reports out to sponsors, that all the data that is in those reports, that it's been checked, that it's been verified, that someone's checked the reports um, from start to finish to make sure that everything that's in that report matches what's in the raw data and that it's all factually correct as well. So that's kind of my role, really, um, as well as kind of approving all the SOPs, auditing the labs and just kind of being available um, to help anyone who's got any queries on GCP um, and also the HTA, the Human Tissue Act. Yes, um, I was going to say, yeah. of, um, the rest of my role. Um, regarding the Paul O'Gorman and the Herschel buildings. I'm also the quality assurance manager within that area for the HTA, the Human Tissue Act. Okay. Um, that also takes up a lot of time as well. So does that, so does that mean you've got a, a fairly acute tie-in with the, the biobanks and, and things like that as well? Do you, do you have much work with them as well? 
Absolutely. So yeah. um, I work very closely with um, Amy Peasland, who runs yeah. a central biobank, and also Emma Rain, who runs a really successful bioresource and who was the biobank manager for Newcastle Biobank. Um, so in terms of HTA and biobanking, they really are my go-to people yeah. for absolutely everything. I think it's really important to kind of surround yourself with people who know more about things than you do and oh, yeah. have them there absolutely. as really useful contacts. So they've been absolutely yeah. invaluable. No, it's really good. People. No, I, don't, I totally agree with you there. Like, if you if you don't know, you've got to find somebody who does. And, and the more people we can ask to help us out, the better, I think, the better Definitely. you'll be. So that's um, it's really interesting because I've, I've been wanting to talk to, to somebody uh, like yourself because it's 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 common for me so i always come to to, to these podcast interviews um, um from from my background which is is pretty much straight through academic research so from graduate to postgrad to being a technician to to being what i am now um so i've never i've, I've always joked with people i've not been outside of a university since 2004 um which is a bit worrying now in 2021 but there you go um but obviously what, what i ended up doing or what what you end up doing although we're Sort of one building away from each other is is it could be more different like your your view on things is, is a lot different so um i want to take you right right back to in the way i won't we won't ask for dates but um but when <laughs> when you were doing your your undergraduate uh whereabouts did you study are you up in the northeast for for good are you native to the northeast i should say or uh, did you um, move up here for undergrad so no i'm not native to the northeast and um, my family are from serbia um i was brought up oh wow cool yeah so um, English is my second language. I was brought up speaking Serbian and um, didn't learn English till I went to school, which was very traumatic. As you wow, can yeah. Um, I did my... Is it, it's, sorry to interrupt. Is it true what they say? Is English really hard to learn if you don't learn it as your primary language? That's what I've heard. That's the root that, that it's like a very difficult language to learn as a second language. Is that true? It's just as a complete sidetrack. I can imagine that it, it would be. I mean, for me, because I was quite young, I was sort of like really thrown in the deep end. I was kind of like immersed in a situation where right. I had to learn English. I had no choice. And I think when you're that age and you're immersed in that situation, you pick it up a lot quicker because you don't question things. So in languages, you have like regular verbs and then you have irregular verbs that don't follow the same pattern. And people yeah. can quite often get hung up on, but why, but why? And it's kind of like, well, you just have to accept that's how it is. So in England, for example, you might say something like, I ride a bike. In Serbia, you would say, I drive a bike. They just use a different verb. Right. Say, I make an exam rather than I take an exam. And it's not kind of one's right and one's wrong. That's no, it doesn't make any sense, right? It's... And that's the verb that they use yeah. in countries. And I think a lot of people get very hung up on, but why do they do that? Why do they say it that way? And the answer is, they just do. There's no logic to it a lot of time, is there? That's, I think that's what people, people's major complaint about when they're learning English is there's absolutely no logic to it and words that look exactly the same and uh, yeah. uh, sound exactly the same are spelled completely differently. Um, I'm just having, I, just to keep people behind, my, I'm acutely aware of this, I'm trying to teach uh, uh, a four-year-old how to how to read and write in in lockdown which is is a lot of fun um and it's it's so that, that was just on my mind sorry so yeah you're not from northeast we're from serbia originally okay uh english second language we'll, we'll pick back up there so when did you uh when where do we go from there okay so um i went to sunderland university and i did okay. a degree in physiology so my mum's a nurse and from a young age i was always kind of interested in the human body and how it works and that kind of thing um, so I was a mature student and um, I was working full time, did A-levels um, and then I went to university when I was 25. Okay. Really enjoyed my time in Sunderland, made lots of great friends, fantastic course, fantastic lecturers. Um, and then after I'd done my undergraduate degree, I went 
to Leicester. So I moved back home to Coventry, lived with my parents, went to Leicester for a year. And I did a master's in molecular pathology and toxicology. Um, okay. So it really well for me because after learning about how the human body works under normal physiological circumstances, it was really interesting to then kind of learn about what happens to the body in disease states. Excellent. Yeah, that sounds really, really interesting. So um, I, I want to give a quick shout out to Lester because um, uh, my mother, who is a massive fan of this podcast, my biggest fan on here, um, also went to Leicester University. So it produces some, uh, some excellent quality graduates, clearly. Um, so how long was your how long was your master's? At, it was a master's, right? How long was your, your master's at Leicester, is it? So is I did it a couple of time. Um, okay. so it was just uh, one year. So it was right. six months of it was taught in Leicester. And then the last six months of it, I had to do a placement. So I actually okay. came to the RVI and I was working in pathology with Dr. John Anderson. Um, and I did right. there. Excellent. So you kind of had, for, for whatever reason, we've had a couple of ties to the Northeast. So after after the Masters, was it a fairly easy transition to stay up in, in Newcastle? Was that was that the jump back up to Newcastle? Because you, you didn't come straight to university after that. Where did you uh, where did you start working after you did your Masters? Um, so after I did my Masters, um, I did move back up to Newcastle. So at that point, I was um, I had my own house. I was living with a partner. Um, so my life was kind of in Newcastle. Right. Um, although I'm not a native from the Northeast, I absolutely love the Northeast. Brilliant location. I love the fact that we're close to the sea, which obviously in Coventry and in Serbia, there's no sea. Um, we've got Scotland not far away. Then we've got the mountains and the Lake District. Kind no, of it's ideal, well. isn't it? So it's, it's brilliant. I absolutely love it here. Um, and I always felt very, very settled and at home here. Um, so I moved back up to Newcastle after I did my master's. Um, I went to lots of different scientific recruitment agencies and gave them my CV. Um, and I knew at that point that I really wanted a job um, in a pharmaceutical company. Okay. Um, it took a little while, but eventually um, I did get a temporary position for a pharmaceutical company called, at the time it was Sanofi Synthalabo, who were based up in Annick. Okay, yes, yep. Um, so I'm yep. sure you've heard of those. Um, I got a job at Sanofi, which originally was temporary, and then it did get made permanent. Um, So I was working in the formulation laboratory, um, sometimes known as the pharmacy or the dispensary, um, very much doing preclinical work. Okay. Um, The department that I was in was drug safety evaluation. So I know that you've had Phil Berry on a podcast here. So I was in the same department as Phil Berry. Um, Worked in different labs, but... Um, farmers very kind of structured so we all had to go to coffee at the same time every day we all had to sit on the table with our departments and pretty much eat the same thing at the same time so um, I got to know Phil very very well Um, and it was actually Phil who he left um, Sanofi two years before me and to come to Newcastle University and it was Phil who told me about the QA manager's role and through a mutual friend and sort of thought it might be a good thing for me to apply for and I did excellent that's amazing that's uh yeah, he's, yeah. Uh, we, we had we had phil on the we had phil on the episode before this one um yeah it's, it's, i always found it really interesting because it's i've never worked for for a, a yeah he is uh, I've, I've never worked for a, a big pharmaceutical company um i've worked for a very small one i did a placement year uh in my undergrad and i worked for a very very small pharmaceutical company i liked it but it's very very different to working in academia um i found that to be that was a, a big shift for me from going from being a student to being uh, working for a pharmaceutical company how did um how did you find it how did because obviously you went from being a master's student to wanting to work in pharmaceuticals um and then from being that really regulated kind of you have to follow a certain pattern even to by the sounds of things even down to taking coffee breaks and lunch breaks with with people at the same time and following you know a lunch sop i don't know who wrote that <laughs> one and who reviews it um but going from that taking to try and 
give that sense of regulation and 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 uh, control in an academic scenario? How's 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 that? How's the how's the change from one to the other? Was it difficult coming back into academia, or was it? Um, it was. I mean, I was in industry for almost ten years as well, so I was there right. for quite a long time. And obviously, they have very very set ways of of doing things. Um, when I first started at Sanofi. Um, obviously, it was a French company, so we had kind of an hour of French lessons every week. There was lots of... Oh, wow, really? Yeah, That's cool. Yeah. Um, there was a group of us, four of us, who were all at about the same level. And the teacher who um, came in um, on site, she was actually a French lady. And um, so she'd get us to like read paragraphs in French and then answer questions on it. And quite often she'd get us to just have general conversations between ourselves in French which was really funny because we all understood each other, but she had no idea why. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it was really, really good fun. And there were lots of trips to France to kind of meet our counterparts. So people who did the same jobs in France that, that we were doing in Annick. Um, so what, what, whereabouts, whereabouts in France was it? Sorry to interrupt you. How, whereabouts in France was it? Um, so I spent some time in Montpellier down in the south of France. Lovely. I also spent um, a lot of time in kind of like the Paris area. So they had about three or four different sites that were sort of in and around Paris. So quite often I would sort of get the first flight to Paris in the morning at about 6.30. And then I would get to France at about 6.40 because obviously the time difference. Yes. Um, I'd sort of spend the day in meetings or whatever and then just fly back the same night. So um, that was quite a common thing. I mean, that's, a, that's a hell of a commute, I'll tell you. It is, it is. A bit different to life today. Very different, yeah. But I made lots of great friends from um, the States, from France, who I still keep in touch with now. Um, so, yeah, it was all good. Um, I think when I came from industry to academia, it was like a massive shock to the system. I don't yeah. know how else to describe it. Um, I sort of remember my interview at Newcastle University and Alan Boddy, who interviewed me at the time, kind of said... So imagine that you're sort of auditing someone in a lab and they're constantly doing something wrong. What would you do? And I said, well, I'd speak to them about what they were doing wrong and let them know what they should be doing. And he said, but what if they still kept doing it? And I was like, OK, so at that point, I'd maybe sort of think there's a training issue. They need refresher training. They need more training. And he was like, but what if you gave them training and they were still doing it wrong? Then what would you do? And I was like, well, at that point, I'd probably speak to the line manager and, you know, sort of share my concerns with them. And Alan was like, and then what would you do if they're still doing it? <laughs> well, I'd probably pull them out of the lab and say, you can't work in the lab anymore. And Alan said, well, that's the difference between industry and academia. He said, in industry where you come from, that's absolutely what would happen. But in academia, you just can't do that. Right. Right. So what to... to I mean, let's just carry that. So what do you do? How, how far can you get down that road before? If there's people doing constantly stuff, constantly doing it wrong, it must be so hard to, because, because academia is like this massive amorphous blob of people doing yeah. everything they want, right? That's the, the joys of being in academia is, you know, if you get budget and, and you've got an idea, go feel free, go ahead and chase it within reason. Yeah. But to try and impose a really strict, obviously necessarily so, but like a, a strict framework onto that, like how do you how do you wrangle people to do that? I, I don't I must be I don't envy it. It's, it must be so. It is really hard. And I mean, we have like really good trainers, trainings or documented, obviously, for GCP, it has to be so that we can prove that that individual was trained. You know, we have um, SOPs that staff are trained on. SOPs are kind of certified and laminated and they're placed around the lab and um, next to the equipment that they relate to so that people have got them there for reference. Um, 
ultimately, I think at the end of the day, the responsibility lies with that individual's line manager and that person's PI. Um, if it's a student that we've got in the lab, obviously they've paid a lot of money to do that course. They've paid to be in yeah. the lab. So we can't just then kind of pull them out of the lab. So maybe we'd have to try and find um, a more desk-based project for them to do, maybe analyzing data perhaps or something like that so that they're still getting something out of it for them. But, you know, yeah. Okay. in the lab um, to people yeah. around them. So it, it is really hard. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I've never worked directly on a clinical trial myself. Um, I've been kind of, because we work, because I work in the, in the flow cytometry core facility, there are, I know there are people doing uh, ongoing clinical trial work, either preclinical or in the middle of a clinical trial using some of our instrumentation. And I kind of have a vague awareness of how much effort has to go into the SOPs. And we put a lot of effort into ours, um, which is mainly we, we started doing when, when Andy Philby came on board. Um, but I know it's a massive, massive, massive task to kind of make sure that not only is everything documented, but everybody's read it, everybody's trained, Absolutely. and everybody agrees to it. And then any changes have to go through everybody and through yourself. And, and it kind of, it's a lot of, 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 of work ahead of time before you can actually start any wet lab work, which is always a little bit opposite to what people actually feel like I want to do in academia. Like me in an academic lab, I was always more about, well, give me a prepare and a job and I'll go and do that and I'll show me the paperwork later, I'll figure it out, but I'll just do it the way I think is best, which is absolutely not what you need to do in a clinical trial. You need to know everything before you start and then start. Because um, we are, we've, we've, I don't know if you, um, you know, the guys over in the Centre for Life on the, on the top floor of the Centre for Life, there's a, a cellular therapies facility yes, up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so CTF. So we, we've done a clinical trial with them before. Um, and that's kind of like my only limited experience of it. But yeah. I guess what I wanted to ask was, um, like, coming from me personally, going from a, a, a place of pure research or doing the facilities work, and then having to take on this clinical trials work for the CTF, um, it felt very different to me. It didn't feel like the kind of science I was doing normally. Um, and I often felt like I was kind of running to catch up to, to, to this group of people that do this for a living, right? So they're, they're used to handing the SOPs. They've got the framework in their head and, and they know how they're supposed to follow it. And I just wasn't there. I, I, I felt like I was, you know, there was very conscious that there was lots of things that I needed to do and I had to do them right and so on and so forth. How do you think, um, what do you do for like for new people coming into the lab and, and they're going to join a clinical trial, they're going to join this, the clinical trials team? How do you get them up to speed if they're coming from a, like an academic background or, or like a, a completely new graduate? Um, what kind of training program do you have to put in place to kind of get people up to speed? So we've got our own kind of in-house, we call it GCLP training that I do. So it stands for Good Clinical Laboratory Practice. Right. And that kind of talks about GCP at a very high level initially. And then the second half of that training is me kind of talking about specifically um, how we meet all those criteria within the, what was the NICR now, the NUCC. And um, so that's kind of like one of the first steps. Then obviously they all have to have GCP training and um, they all have to have Human Tissue Act training. And um, they also have to have training on the various different bits of equipment that they're going to be using. They have to be trained on how to calibrate their pipettes, for example. Um, so in the Paul O'Gorman building, we calibrate our pipettes every three months. And um, just as a comparison, when I was in industry, we used to uh, calibrate pipettes every week. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so people who complain about doing it every three, every three months. Yeah, yeah, right, I bet. Um, so there is a lot of training. They're always kind of buddied up with someone um, within the Paul O'Gorman building. It, it's predominantly just one group, Gareth Fields group, who work on the clinical trials. 
Um, so generally we all kind of like sit in one area. We're very, very close. We all work very closely together. I think if there are any problems with new starters, it's very easy to kind of pick that up and just kind of like help them before they maybe feel too overwhelmed or too lost, which I can imagine it would be really, really easy to feel like that. So we are a very kind of helpful and um, supportive group. Yeah, that's really good. Because do you, do you ever get approached by other other areas, other other groups in, in the university who want to start or, or want to get involved in, in a clinical trials work? And do you ever have input on how they can get going on, on their groups as well? Or is it is it, I know it's, it's mainly in Gareth's group, but um, do you ever get approached to kind of help out other people's as well? Or? Um, yeah, so I, I have been approached. Um, I was approached by the mitochondrial group a couple of years ago with uh, Professor Sadog Turnbull. He approached me as well. Um, so I kind of went and gave them a presentation that was just kind of about how within the Paulo Gorman building and within my group, how we um, comply with the Human Tissue Act and also how we comply with the GCP regulations and the processes that we have in place. Um, and then I did spend quite a bit of time, myself and my colleague, Julie Errington, um, with members of that group kind of going through um, various different sections of, of GCP and kind of sharing our documentation and paperwork that we already have in place and um, our SOPs and kind of saying, if any of this is useful to you, don't reinvent the wheel, just use it, modify it, amend it and, you know, just kind of do it that way. Yeah, and I, that must be a, that must be a massive relief if you if you've got somebody with your experience coming up to you and saying, um, yeah, look, look, we've done this. This is how you do it. I'll, this is how we train. This is how our documents look. Yeah. This is how yours should look as well. Follow this, you know, follow this pattern and that we can get to the same level. That must be, I mean, I know that would be, certainly if we want to do any clinical trials, I know who I'm phoning up. So. <laughs> Thank you very much. But the mitochondrial group were great to work with. And we also, you know, got a lot out of that um, from working with them as well. And one yeah. of the good things about that from our perspective was that, you know, when you're kind of talking about your processes to other people, they can question, well, well, why do you do this? Or why do you do that? So by explaining the reasons why, you're kind of reaffirming it to yourself as well. And sometimes you might stop and think, well, yes, actually we do do that, but maybe we could do it better or maybe we could do it differently. So it's really, really worthwhile for us as well, because obviously yeah. with things like GCP and quality, it's always changing. They're always raising the bar. So just when you think that you've got there, they kind of raise it a little bit higher and, you know, you have to tighten up your procedures as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I know what you mean. It's, it's even on any level, I think if you're, if you take anything that you spend a lot of time on and have to teach it to somebody completely new or share it with somebody completely new, it always does change how you think about it a little bit because you can't, it's never a one size fits all. You're going to have to exactly. modify it a little bit to fit somebody and, and, where you can change and where you can't change knowing you don't necessarily know where that is unless you start trying to train people um, certainly I felt like that in the past so that's really interesting so I'm going to steer try and steer the topic of conversation back to to the IMA because I know a lot of what we've spoken about so far kind of transitioning into academia I think there there are a lot of people that do that at university I know you get a lot of people from all over doing different industries and coming to work to work into academia and I always like I'm always interested in in finding out how those people found it um invariably though most of the people say it's, it's a big shock to the system but once you get used to it you you get used to it it's fine um i want i do often wonder if it's a, a shock to the system going the other way i think maybe it's a bigger shock shock going the other way probably a worse shock going from yeah, academia into industry shock going yeah. from academia to industry i mean it really would i think things that you know we sort of take for granted in academia is very much kind of like the flexibility 
So, you know, I could start later in the day and finish later in the day. I might choose to kind of change my working hours slightly. Yeah. Whereas in industry, we had kind of flexi time, but you had to be on site at half nine and the earliest you could leave was was half three. Yeah. We weren't allowed to check emails from home. We weren't allowed to take anything home. So no documents, nothing. Everything had to stay at work. We had to have like clear desk policies um so everything had to go into like locked cabinets and things in the evening before yeah. we went home I mean we had training on things like you should never just walk away from your pc and leave it open leave it unlocked because somebody could come on and send emails from your account or they could go through your documents or anything particularly when we changed from um a pharmaceutical company to a contract research organization so in the last 12 months that I was in industry we changed from Sanofi Aventis who decided that they didn't want the Annexite anymore um, to Covance. So Covance um, took us over. And because Covance have um, so many compounds that they're developing for so many different people, we had loads of people on site from different companies on, all the time. Um, so we had to have training on, for example, um, how to deal with clients who were from um, the Far East. So right. things like when you have the Japanese businessmen on site, you have to line up in order of importance. Um, when they give you a business card, you have to look at it and then you have to kind of read it line by line. And it was just teaching you about um, what people from other cultures find respectful and um, things like you should never put on your out of office that you're away on holiday. You should always put that you're just away from work, for example, and when you'll be back, that kind of thing. That's an interesting one. I've never, I've never heard of that. I've never, I have seen, I've seen all variety of out of office work, out of office replies from the university ones. Um yeah, it's, I think I think it would be a massive shock if you came back to it. Um, if you if you went one way <laughs> to the other, uh, I don't know how I, I I've already been in industry for a very short time. I'm not sure. I'm, I think I'm I'm too set in my ways now. I mean, I won't say how old I am, but uh, yeah, I think I've been there too long. Um, so yeah, I like the, I like the flexibility. You, you do kind of I mean, like anything. I think you take the flexibility for granted if you stay in it for long enough. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, like I think people can be made slightly more aware of how how flexible we've got it to uh to, to kind of take advantage of it it's, it's definitely good um but when it comes to so uh, because this is obviously the im ima um i just wanted to try and put what you do um and what the other people in, that i've spoken to in the ima theme um into into context because i think it's it's really really interesting for me that somebody like yourself is works at newcastle university same as we all do um but what you do is is acutely different to what a majority of other people do, um, and I think it's it's a really key point. If there are people in the IMA theme, postdocs and PhD students and and PIs, um, lots of P's there, I realise. Postdocs, PhD students, <laughs> PIs, um, all those different people could certainly see to to gain a lot of benefit from taking a little bit of an interest in in the things that you do on a day to day basis. And I just wondered, like, do you think there's um, do you ever wish that there's there's a there's like a subset of things that people knew off the top of their heads or knew ahead of time before they approached you uh, to get some clinical trials work? Do you wish that those questions, those same sort of three questions you get asked off the bat, I'm thinking about doing a clinical trial, what do I do? Uh, or do, do you get like those top level questions? Or do you think there's like there's capacity within the IMA to kind of maybe suggest people start taking a bit more of an interest in this, um, in, 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 in what you do and, and how that affects them? Um, and I guess two parts to that question is, do you think there's there's definitely an interest for that? Do you think do you think that's that's something that would be useful? And of those kind of top top tier questions that you get asked on a on a weekly basis, I imagine, 
Um, what do you wish people knew before they came and came and spoke to you? Um, I guess I wish that maybe people had a little bit more awareness of kind of quality and regulations. I think a lot of people kind of assume that what they're doing must be GCP. Um, or there's the really common misconception actually is GLP, which stands for good laboratory practice. Yeah. Um, so when I worked in industry, it was preclinical work that we did, um, which was GLP. So GLP is always specific to um, preclinical work. Okay. But because of the name good laboratory practice, there is this misconception that it's just people that work in any lab who do what they do well. So they're yes. working in a laboratory and their practices are good. And actually, it doesn't mean that at all. It's, it's completely different. So a lot of people think that they're working to GLP, but it, it really isn't that at all. Um, so, and I think the science and the quality really go together kind of hand in hand. And for sure. the science is extremely important. It's, you know, for the university, it's the bread and butter. It's what we do. But there does need to be um, a little bit more focus, I think, on the quality and one thing that, you know, I sort of say to people um, within the NICR quite frequently is, you know, if people who have done the PhD, and I don't have a PhD myself, so I've got nothing but respect and admiration for anyone who's achieved that level yep. of education. Same, same. You know, if, if you've got your PhD, somebody should be able to read your PhD. They should be able to do all the experiments that you've done just from, from reading it. So not you telling them, but just from like looking at the documentation and they should be able to get the same results that you got. It should be reproducible. And if not, then then why not? And is it really kind of as credible as you might think it is? And that's yeah. pretty much what GCP is really. It's just about making sure that everything that we do, that it is credible, that it is accurate, and that if somebody else were to do exactly the same experiments, that they would get the same results. So I mean, basically with GCP, um, everything has to be documented, as you know. So as far as the MHRA, the regulatory inspectors are concerned, if it's not documented, it didn't happen. Yeah. You can't ever kind of stand in front of an MHRA inspector and say, well, I wasn't here then, that was before my time, so-and-so did that, and they're not here today. You should always be able to look at those records and reconstruct exactly what happened, so who did what, when, using what equipment, for example, on which date. Yeah. So, um, that's think, important of that record-keeping in GCP. I think, I think that you could... If people applied even a small percentage of that kind of really fastidious record keeping to day-to-day -day lab work, you'd be amazed. They'd be amazed at how how much easier it is to do lots of different things. Like thing that made me acutely aware. Like we didn't have very good um, standard operating procedures prior to to Andy Philby starting. And one thing he made us do, which was painful for the longest time, but it's less painful now, is to write very, very, very detailed SOPs and risk assessments all in one document. Um, into something we, we call a SOPRA, SOP, Standard Operating Procedure and Risk Assessment, all, all one together. And we put a load of effort into them and they're very, very detailed. But because we have those in place now, when people come and talk to us and ask us, well, where do I start? We have a document that we can send them and say, look, this is a pictorial baby steps, walk you through bit by bit, what buttons to click and everything you need to do. Um, follow this and you will be using the instruments in the same way we are. And we now, it's also not just do we get people up to speed faster, but it's a wonderful resource because if you put all the effort in in the, in the front end and, and get those documents out there and, and make sure people read them, when people are doing stuff wrong and they say, well, you never told me how to do it, you go, well, I did because I've got a document that you signed Definitely. and you said you did know how to do it. So this isn't on me, this is on you. And you can just go, 
but reread the, the document and we'll all be back on the same page. And I think if people, academics and, and people in the, in the IMA team, if we put a little bit more effort into that uh, and a little bit more awareness of the positive impact, not just the negative, oh, this is going to take the ages, but the positive impact of, of what that can have on students coming into your lab or other academics coming into your lab, you'd be surprised at how fast people get better. Um, and how, how much more repeatable stuff is like like you said like if everybody had quality assurance on their phd thesis then every new phd thesis that was building on an old one would be starting at a much higher point you wouldn't be um as i'm sure phd students listening to this might be aware you wouldn't be repeating work that other people have done to see if it still works because of course it works it's, it's there's all the documentation that says it does so i i, I really hope that we can get something like this i think there's a, there's there's potential i mean i don't know how interested you are i don't know the the ima is going to be doing uh well we are doing special interest groups so we're going to be doing six i know phil's going to be involved in one i'm personally involved in a few um i think we could if we can put an aspect of quality assurance into the six or even have a separate sig for it and and just get people to be a little bit more aware of it it's not just about getting into lab and getting your hands wet if you could if you could just pre-prepare yourself a little bit um you're going to make your life easier further down the road and 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 then when you do want to transition into doing a clinical trial well you, you've done 90 percent of the work and all you've got to do is 10 percent more exactly. um so i think i think that's a really like valuable thing that we can you can bring to people um and i think as well andrew sorry to interrupt that you no know, please the sops that you know you just sort of talking about there they're also there to protect you and to protect the patients on the clinical trials. So yes. it protects you because if anything were to go wrong on a clinical trial, you've got that SOP there to say, well, this is the SOP that was approved by management that I was following. And obviously it's protecting the patients because they know that when you're kind of um, analyzing their samples or testing the drug or whatever it is that you're doing, that you've got proper procedures in place um, and that things aren't gonna go wrong because you've done something incorrectly. So, you know, it, it's good all around for everybody. Yeah, totally. And if, if people do end up doing their training with us at Newcastle and then going into the wider world, I think, uh, and, and they don't work in a, in a university, they don't work in academia, I think they'll uh, the more experience you can have saying that you've done uh, high-level SOPs or high-level quality control um, in the lab that you've worked in previously, the better standing you'll be working in, a, in an industry lab because it's a heck of a lot more regulated than people think it is. Definitely. Um, there's lots, so I, there's lots of um, <clears throat> MHRA inspections. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I have friends who work in, in, in big pharmaceutical companies and, and used to work, I have a friend who used to work for Covance up in, uh, in the central belt in Scotland, now works for PPD and a lot of people who work for GSK and, and Pfizer and, and all over the country. And the amount of regulation they have to do compared to the amount of regulation that I have to do is, is, is it's two worlds apart. So what I'm basically saying, trying to get at to people listening is that, you know, that I'm, I would be interested in, in getting a voice like yours heard more widely, uh, certainly within our theme members, so that people can start thinking about this sort of stuff uh, and taking it on board. Because I think it's, it's, it's so massively impactful on, on day-to-day work um and everything that you've spoken about is just makes that really really obvious that it would be of huge benefit to people if they just started doing a little bit more of it and it's not it it's not necessarily okay everybody down tools for three months whilst we all write sops it's not that but it's it's maybe okay maybe we we review our start reviewing our sops once a year um 
just just to, as, as an extra aside to that like the amount of risk assessments i get sent through we asked started asking for risk assessments to be shown to us prior to people booking the instrumentation the amount of times i had people say what's the risk assessment was shocking yeah <laughs> i mean if people if people are listening um and i know we, you know if you don't know what the biocosh is at newcastle university if i have to explain that to you um then i'm not going to let you anywhere near my kit or in my lab <laughs> because you should know that before you started in the lab and if you didn't it's not necessarily the the individual students fault but they should be be given training up front so that they know what the risk it's not just signing up at the last page and not re ever reading it that's no good either okay you've got to know what's in it it can't be dated from 15 years ago you know it's got to have the right names on it the right dates and it's got to be reviewed and signed and there are people who have good lab managers good technicians that stay on top of that for them but it's no good if everybody doesn't buy in. You can't just have one good person doing it. Um, um, anyway, that's my rant over. Um, <laughs> so I mean, I'll just just I'll I'll, I'll start wrapping this up. But um, uh, yeah, I think it would be really useful if we can if we can get some of this more of this kind of QA QA thought processes to uh, to 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 a larger group of academics. I think that'd be really really fascinating. So. Um, I might come back to you with that and see if you're interested in joining some of our sick. That'd be really, really useful. Um, but yeah, so uh, thanks ever so much. I just want to do a couple of announcements just at the end of the, the podcast. People are still listening. We've got some uh, IMA uh, external speaker and internal speaker meetings coming up. Um, so we've got uh, Wednesday, 3rd of March, 10 to 11 a.m., uh, a Zoom meeting with uh, Dr. Marie Phelan, uh, Phelan sorry, from the University of Liverpool. And she's going to be talking about uh, introduction to NMR metabolomics uh, for cardiovascular research. Um, we've got Dr. Mary Neal, uh, research associate uh, in in vivo imaging. Uh, so that's just an internal talk on the 24th of March at the same time, 10 to 11, uh, looking at non-invasive lung ventilation and imaging in COPD and asthmas using fluorine MRI, MRI. Sorry, that was a weird mix of letters. I couldn't say fluorine MRI, um, which will be really, really interesting as well, especially with the, um, I imagine that's getting a, a lot of buzz at the moment with the, the the impact of coronavirus and COVID on on patients' lung tissues. If they're trying to think up innovative ways to image lungs, then um, the more the better, really, especially in, in people with COPD and asthmas. Um, so there's a couple of really interesting talks we've got coming up. Uh, I'll like to point people to our research.ncl.ac.uk page slash IMA um, for all other details. Um, and last of all, I'd like to thank you very much, Lulu, for giving me a bit of time on on a wintry Tuesday, on a wintry Thursday, sorry. Thank and you I indeed. Really no, thanks very much. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you again soon, but uh, otherwise take care. Thanks for, that was a really good, uh, really good chat. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.